So you might be joining us for the first time in our study of Mark, or perhaps you have missed a few weeks. Recently, we just came through chapter 14, and Mark has been doing some comparison and contrasting with different characters. Last week, the comparison and contrast was between Jesus and Peter. Jesus was taken to Caiaphas's house, and he's taken to the upper level during the night, which... Um, well, I'll get to that in just a moment. He was tried by a group of religious leaders that were gathered together. Uh, this gathering, which I was just going to mention a moment ago, was illegal according to Jewish custom because this group was only supposed to have trials take place during the day. So what's taking place here during the night is a very much a double standard according to these Jewish leaders. They render a verdict that Jesus is deserving of death because of his claims. The only answers that Jesus is giving during this trial are answers that pertain to the questions about his identity. So the high priest asked Jesus in chapter 14, verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And up to this point, he's been quiet. When it comes to question of identity, Jesus responds and says, yes, I am that. I am he. And he goes on to say that you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And that statement draws on our Old Testament. This is why it's important for us to know our Old Testament. The one seated at the right hand of the Father is taken from Psalm 110, where the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the idea there is that Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under his feet. And so when Caiaphas asks the question about who Jesus is, and Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to be sitting at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are put under my feet, Caiaphas knows exactly what he's quoting from Psalm 110, claiming to be the Messiah King. And of course, Caiaphas realizes that Jesus and he are at odds right now. Caiaphas would be his enemy, so Jesus is claiming, you will be put under my feet. And wow, what a picture takes place in AD 70 when God comes and just destroys the temple there and making a proclamation that this is done, this is judgment that's coming here. Not only did Jesus say that he's seated at the right hand, giving implications of his power and that his enemies will be crushed, but he also says that you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's another phrase taken from Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. Again, a name for God. And here is Jesus being predicted, prophesied, foretold. Comes to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom or a dominion. And what characterizes this kingdom or dominion is that it is eternal in nature. It goes on forever. So Caiaphas hears Jesus saying, you're my enemy, you're going to be put under my feet and crushed, and I am going to be the ruler of a kingdom that will have no end. And at this, Caiaphas just takes his garments and shreds them apart and says, you've heard what he said, he's guilty of blasphemy. Is it blasphemous, though? 
This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God from Mark 1, verse 1, who has said, that's who I am. I'm Psalm 110. I'm Daniel chapter 7. And indeed, he is the king, and all enemies will be brought under his footstool. So here is Jesus claiming the truth. And for that, he's going to be sentenced. They say he's deserving of death. At the same time, while Jesus is being tried up in Caiaphas' house, Peter is down in the courtyard, and he's going through his own little trial there. You remember the servant girl is there. And the servant girl comes up to him and says, Hey, haven't I seen you before? Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter now feels like he's in court. And Peter goes, no, 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 I, I, no. Nope, nope, denial number one. A little while later, that same girl comes by and says to the bystanders there, haven't I seen this guy following Jesus? Peter hears it and says, no, 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 denial number two. Then a little bit later, he's standing in the midst of a, a crowd and a group of people say, hey, we are picking up on your accent You're from Galilee. We know that before. Surely you're one of his followers. Peter denies Jesus three times. The rooster crows, and he realizes that he has sinned. Now, what we did last week right at the end is we looked at Peter, and we could see that God uses bent nails to build up his kingdom. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter in a situation that is uniquely ironic, considering that he denied Jesus at the house of Caiaphas, he's now brought in front of Caiaphas in Acts chapter 4 after healing a lame man. And Caiaphas is like, you got to stop this whole thing. Stop teaching what you're teaching. By what name, by what power do you do this? And Peter, he has this incredible statement that, I do this by the name of Jesus. And then he goes on further in Acts chapter 4, and he says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus himself. So here's Peter, who's all bent up in Mark chapter 14, denies Jesus three times. You come to Acts chapter 4, he's filled with the Spirit now, surrendered to the Lord, and God is using him to build up his kingdom. It's a wonderful reminder that when you see failure in your life, when you see sin in your life, God isn't finished with you yet. He can still use you. So that brings us now to chapter 15. Chapter 15, we're going through verse 15. Josh read it just a moment ago. There's four points to the sermon. I'll give them to you now and I'll give them to you while we go through the sermon. So just so you know what's going on, Jesus is handed over, verse 1. Then we'll see Jesus questioned. We'll see Jesus substituted. And then we'll see Jesus condemned. So those are the four points of the sermon this morning. Verse 1, we see Jesus handed over. We're told here that the religious leaders are gathering together in the morning, and they're holding a consultation with one another. The reason why they're holding the consultation is that just a few hours earlier during the night, they had condemned Jesus deserving of death. 
However, you might remember from last week that these religious leaders called the Sanhedrin do not have the authority or power to put somebody to death. They live under the Roman Empire and only Rome carries the sword. So they have to somehow figure out how to take this person, Jesus, whom they've condemned to death, and they have to get him to be put to death. Rome has to do it for them. So their conclusion is the most likely person to put him to death would be Pilate. And so you see at the end of verse 1 that they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now who's Pilate? Pilate is the ruling representative over Palestine during this time. History tells us that he ruled from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. The historian who was living during that time, Philo, he says that Pilate was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. And while Pilate was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel, the Gospels, along with Josephus, present him as somebody who is very shrewd, somebody who is very cunning, very wily. He had shown his sort of judgment on things to get out of delicate situations by squelling, if you will, or quelling riots. He brought in a, a, a number of statues from Rome, brought them right into the middle of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is like a powder keg in the Roman Empire. These Jews, they don't permit idolatry. And here come these statues right into Jerusalem that Pilate had brought. And there was this threat of a riot that was popping up. And Pilate looks at his own authority and power and says, I want these statues here. And he looks at peace on the other hand and sees these Jews who are potentially rioting. And one of Pilate's maneuvers during that time was known for removing the statues and then taking them to a city further away. Maybe they'll stand over there. Well, the Jews protested and followed him there to Caesarea. And he gathered all of these Jews who were protesting into an amphitheater, brought his soldiers in, bearing their swords, and said, you better bow the knee or I'm going to lop off your head. The people who were in their amphitheater called his bluff, exposed their necks, and said, go for it. And Pilate was in a moment where he had to make a decision. And he wisely pulled back on his threat, going back to Jerusalem somewhat defeated, or going back to where he ruled somewhat defeated, and yet all the while looking at those situations and trying to be calculated as much as possible. Selfish man on one hand, calculated on the other. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the old 1960s show, Batman. Batman and Robin. Joker, he's just a maniac. And this is what Pilate reminds me of. Joker who's willing to slip in, cause a little trouble here, but if it causes him too much trouble, he'll pull back, move away to another place. Very self-centric in every way. Now this is to whom Jesus is handed over. He's handed over to Pilate, a Gentile. What's going on here at the end of verse 1 is a picture that goes all the way back to the Old Testament 
Speaking of those who are guilty being handed over to the Gentiles. Because under God's law, God had said, if you walk away from me and commit sins, if you rebel against me, I'm going to hand you over to the Gentiles, and they are going to be your form of judgment. They're going to destroy you. In the book of Psalms, we read about this. Psalm 106, verses 37 to 41. Speaking of God's people, Israel, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So here's Israel. They're sacrificing their children in idolatry. Thus became, they became unclean by their acts. They played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. And here it is. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. And what God did through that was brought judgment upon his own people. He would hand them over to the nations so that they would defeat them, and that was God's form of judgment. Now, here's the irony. Here is Jesus being handed over by his own people to the nations. He's being handed over, and yet he has committed no sin. And this begins the path that Jesus is going to take in his way to the cross in being substituted for us. He's going to take the judgment that they deserved, not him. Was this a surprise to Jesus? Not at all. Back in chapter 10 of Mark, verse 33, Jesus had told the disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus knows that all of this is going to take place. He's not a victim to the circumstances. He's willfully stepping into this deliverance. We've seen Jesus use his mouth to just throw demons out of people. We've seen Jesus use his words to heal people on the spot. In John 18, I referenced it last week, when Jesus is in the garden and a group of soldiers come to him, he speaks and they all fall back. By the word of his mouth, Jesus could stop all of this. And here is Jesus being willfully delivered in order to go to the cross. He's willfully surrendering himself to the Father's will, not my will, but yours be done. And so every step along the way, you have to see Jesus not being a victim. You have to see Jesus saying, okay, this is the Father's will that I will take this next step. This is the Father's will that I will be condemned. This is the Father's will that I'll be seized. This is the Father's will that I'll be delivered over to Pilate. This is all part of God's plan that's going on now. So the path to the cross is actually a path that's according to the plan of God. We move into verses 2 through 5, where Jesus is questioned. Jesus is questioned. Mark, in his gospel, he moves along very quickly. Luke, Matthew, John, they have extra details where, where Jesus is actually brought to Pilate, questioned, taken to Herod Antipas, questioned there, brought back to Pilate, Mark doesn't include the Herod scene here. 
he just moves quickly into what takes place with Pilate. And Pilate has a question. Remember, Pilate is the representative of Rome. He's not concerned about these religious statements. He's concerned about how do the people see him? How does Jesus see himself? And so right away in verse 2, Pilate has a question, and it's the one that Mark is pushing forward. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's an interesting question because this has echoes that go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' life. We know if we're readers of Scripture that this has been a theme that doesn't just show up at Jesus' crucifixion. This has been a theme that has been prophesied in the Old Testament that keeps coming up and is even present at Jesus' birth. You're at Mark 16. Just turn the page or two over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. Luke 1, 31. This is the angel coming to Mary announcing the birth of Jesus. And notice the kingly language that's here. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. From the very beginning. You remember the Gospel of Matthew. These men show up in Jerusalem from the east, And what's their question? Where is he who is king of the Jews? And not only is it just at Jesus' birth, but if you launch back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, you remember the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice about this son, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Here's the kingly language. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Accompanying Jesus' story from the prophecies to his birth all the way up to now with Pilate is this question, who are you? And the Bible keeps answering the question, he's a king. He's a king. He's a king. We know that Jesus is not going to be a king in the way that everyone thinks or wants him to be a king. Jesus is setting up a kingdom that is without borders and without walls. He's no Vlad. He's no Xi. He's no Biden. All of those have kingdoms that are bound up by walls and borders here. But here is Jesus whose kingdom is going to be a kingdom that permeates and goes beyond physical walls and borders. That's why in John's gospel, during this exchange with Pilate, Jesus can say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's spiritual in nature, meaning that the rule of Jesus is going to reach people's hearts across the nations, into the nations. We know from our study of Mark that Jesus has greater power than anyone. If he wants to come into Jerusalem and lead a coup and kick Pilate out, and remove Herod, and remove Caesar, we know that just a spoken word 
can do that. And yet Jesus is saying, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you're anticipating. I'm the kind of king that is going to reach into people's hearts and lives so that they will personally give their lives over to me. So when we read books like Colossians, we read about his kingdom. And again, I referenced this last week that when God saves a person, he transfers them out of the domain of darkness, spiritually speaking, and brings them into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. Meaning that we are citizens of this kingdom. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is this, to whom is my life surrendered this morning? Who is your king? Who is your authority in life? Are you bowing down to the throne of yourself? Are you bowing down to the throne of what you want in life? Or are you surrendered to the Lord Jesus as king? Pilate asks this question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus turns around and he basically says, you've said it. That's who I am because I am a king. And yet my kingdom is not of this world. We know that the religious leaders have no respect for Jesus. We're going to see that Pilate, kind of maniacal, has no respect for Jesus. But as Christians, we're gathered here this morning and we hold the word of God in our hands and we read in the last book of the Bible that here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is who he is to us. Or are we like the Jews? Are we like Pilate? We bow our lives and we bow our wills to him. He leads us. He directs us. So here's Jesus responding, saying, you have said so. And all of this, then the the conversation continues with verse 3, where the chief priests accused him of many things. We see in other gospels what they're accusing him of. They accuse him of misleading the Jews. They accuse him of forbidding people to pay taxes. They accuse him of claiming to be an earthly king. And then it says, Pilate asks him again in verse 4, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And it says in verse 5, But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And again, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus can stand there and keep his mouth shut when he hears so many lies being spoken against him? How is it that Jesus could do that? 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's the son who has prayed earlier in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He can go through this trial standing in front of Pilate, being asked about his identity, saying, yes, that's who I am, being accused by the chief priests and scribes, of all these other things, and say, I don't have to answer, I don't have to answer, I don't have to answer. Why? Because he continually entrusts himself to his father. 
And folks, this is where we're at in the Christian life. We know that we are going to be accused of being haters. We know that we're going to be accused of being inconsistent, which we are many times. We know we're going to be accused of many things. And let me just say, Peter is responding to a group of people who are under persecution and saying, you can go through life as Jesus did, continually entrusting yourself to the Father who judges all things justly. Here's Jesus setting the example for us as he's questioned. Verses 6 through 11. Jesus is substituted. In verse 6, we see that there was a custom that Pilate used to carry out for the Jews. We're not sure how long this custom has been in place, whether it was a custom that Pilate actually instituted or if it had been going on for several years before that. The custom was that at this feast of Passover, the leader would release to the Jews one of their prisoners. And one of the thoughts is that this has echoes of the Passover, where the Jews, centuries earlier, were prisoners in Egypt. And God came along and freed them, leading them out to a land. And the idea here is that as the Jews would have this prisoner released, it was somewhat commemorative for them to be able to think back again on what God has done for them. We were prisoners. Here's a prisoner that's being released and freed. In verse 6, it's Pilate's custom to release somebody. In verse 7, we're introduced to the one who's imprisoned. In verse 7, it says, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Now, Mark gives us several qualities about Barabbas. He's a rebel who's in prison right now. He was part of an insurrection. And again, I told you that Jerusalem could be like a powder keg in the Roman Empire where there were several riots and insurrections that were taking place. We're not given the particular insurrection that he was part of. But in that insurrection, we're led to believe that it was during that time where Barabbas murdered someone, whether it was premeditated or whether it was some sort of self-defense act, we're not sure, but we know that he is in prison for being a murderer. So in verse 7, the text continues on into verse 8, and the crowd comes up and begins to ask Pilate to do as he had usually done for them. Barabbas being the one who's in prison. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So the crowds have come to Pilate asking for the custom to take place for the prisoner to be released. And keep in mind what Jesus must have looked like in this moment. We've read back in chapter 14 that when the chief priests and the scribes condemned him. He was beaten up, punched, spit upon. So this guy, Jesus, is bloodied up. His garments would be stained with blood. He's bound with the rope here. And Pilate, remember, he's kind of a maniac. He likes to stick his finger into people's eyes. He has this crowd in front of him, and he looks at Jesus, this guy that's all bound up, the Jews, now in front of him, and he says to them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? This is your king? Do you want me to release him for you? Kind of rubbing salt in the wound for them. Now, Pilate knew something about why the chief priests were envious 
they knew, he knew, that Jesus had come into Jerusalem and had created a movement that was drawing the people away from the chief priests. He was getting notoriety. His popularity was increasing. We've seen this where he was in the temple complex responding to the religious leaders and putting them in their place. And I think the Jews were feeling a sense of freedom that finally this legalistic standard that's been upon us is now being pushed against and Jesus is the guy to do that. Crowds were walking away from the religious leaders going over to where Jesus was teaching and listening to him. And now the religious leaders are becoming envious of Jesus' teaching. So he can see the chief priests losing their popularity. And he's asking the crowd now, do you want this king, this Jesus, to be released for you? In all of this, we can see that Pilate is playing the game. And we know from the other gospels that Jesus, in Pilate's eyes, is not guilty In Luke's gospel, it tells us he wants to release Jesus. And so he's hoping that Jesus will look like a non-threat to them and say, okay, let him go. He's the prisoner. Let him go. Well, that's not how it turns out. In verse 11, it says that the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas. Now, this is a major turning point in the book of Mark because, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, the crowds have functioned like a character. All the way up from Galilee, the crowds have been flocking to Jesus. They've been giving him greater and greater attention. He is, in today's sort of parlance, he's a rock star. And all of these people are being attracted to him, and now the leaders start to stir up the crowd and notice how the crowd responds in verse 12. Or chief priest stir up the crowd and have him release Barabbas instead. How is it that the crowds go from being a fan of Jesus where he could be released in this moment to instead having Barabbas be released? They're given the option. Jesus, the one whom they've loved, the one whom they've been impressed with, now with Barabbas. Why would they pick Barabbas? I think there's something going on here. Um, I think I can somewhat illustrate it with an Old Testament story. Remember Amnon and Tamar. You're like, where is this going? Hang on for just a second. Amnon loved his half-sister Tamar with a sensual love so much that the text says it made him ill. He was given over to this girl. Kind of sick. His friend Jonadab concocted a plan for Tamar to come into his house, his tent, while he's sick, to help Amnon get close to Tamar, and maybe Tamar would reciprocate the love and something would happen. So Tamar is sent for When she gets there, Amnon says, hey, come on, lie with me. But Tamar responds in a way that totally disappoints Amnon by refusing him. All of his hopes that he had had for her, now she comes and says, no way, not at all. And after that happened, Amnon just presses in and rapes her. 
2 Samuel 13, verse 15, tells us the fallout of it. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Do you see how his emotions turned on a dime because she disappointed him in the moment? He had concocted this plan in his mind that she would be his and there would be some reciprocation, and now she turns him down, disappoints him exceedingly. And in that moment, he goes from loving her to hating her. So I'm from Minnesota, Minnesota Timberwolves. They were a dreadful, they've been a dreadful basketball team for years. Every year, they would get either a first-round pick or a top-five pick. And I remember one particular year, they were able to draft a guy, I believe he was from Connecticut, called Danielle Marshall. And he was supposed to be somebody who could come in and just be a hopeful superstar. Danielle Marshall was like so many of the other players that the Timberwolves drafted. Leading up to the draft, there was all kinds of excitement. This is going to be our guy. He's going to bring us to to like a winning season. He's going to help us get to the playoffs. Then he comes, and the season wears on. They lose games. They never make it to the playoffs. And what happens to Danielle Marshall and the rest of them? They become scorned. They become scorned by the paper. They become scorned by the sports writers. They become scorned by the by the fans. You can't do what we wanted you to do. I think that's what's happening with Jesus. Bound with ropes, beaten up, he was supposed to come into Jerusalem and throw Pilate off the throne and start his rule and reign. And all of these people had put their hopes in Jesus. This is what you're going to do for us. And the chief priests are stirring up the crowd saying, look at your winner here. He's such a loser. All of you had placed your hope in him for this point. And he can't do anything. And I think so many people in the crowd were saying, you're right, he's a scam. He's not coming through for us like we hoped he would. And so they released Barabbas instead. This is, again, where we can see ourselves in the crowd. People have this twisted view of Jesus at times. He's supposed to pleasure them. He's supposed to get them wins. He's supposed to set up their lives in a nice way. He's supposed to give them good children. He's supposed to give them healthy parents. He's supposed to help them have financial success, comfortable income. And then, when it doesn't happen the way people had romanticized about it, when Jesus doesn't come through, what happens? They deconstruct. I don't need this faith anymore. Jesus is a disappointment. My parents' religion, it's terrible. But the question is, did they ever love Jesus for who he is and what he has done in giving himself for them? And that might be you today, where you're at this moment where you're like, the Jesus who is supposed to help me and give me joy and lead me through life, the one whom I'm supposed to be able to depend on, he's been a huge disappointment to me. Look at my marriage. Look at my life. It's not ending up the way I want it to end up. Brothers and sisters, Jesus never promised an easy life. He's going to the cross for your greatest need, and that is to deliver you from your sin. 
to deliver you from the wrath of God. And in all of this, there is Jesus who stands innocently without sin. Throughout the text of Scripture, we see of Jesus, he committed no sin, 1 Peter 1, 22. Jesus, he knew no sin. Hebrews chapter 4, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So folks, what we're looking at over here is a sinless man who is going to the cross. And many people have all kinds of hopes and aspirations that he will bring material blessings to them. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm the sinless one who's going to the cross to lay down my life for you. Well, choose him or leave him. Here's what we see now. Point number four, Jesus condemned Jesus condemned. Pilate, in verse 12, again says to the crowd, What shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate says to them, Well, why? What evil has he done? There's the sinlessness right there. There's Jesus' perfection. Pilate is saying what we all should say. What evil has Jesus done? None. That's the answer. But they all shouted the more, crucify him. So Pilate here, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And here's how it all wraps up in this section of Jesus' trial. Pilate doesn't want to do this but he's afraid of the crowd. Three times now, this statement is made about Jesus being crucified. And so he releases Barabbas, and then he scourges Jesus. And that's that long whip that has several different fingers, several different leather straps on the end. And on the end of those leather straps are pieces of bone or pieces of metal. And there Jesus was whipped 39 times across the back there to prepare him for crucifixion. And the idea is that sometimes when somebody was nailed to a cross with puncture wounds in the hands and in the feet, they could stay there for so long and not die, and yet the blood loss from the scourging would speed up death, weaken them so that their knees would give out and they'd die from asphyxiation. And so here's Pilate now looking at Jesus saying, you don't deserve death, and yet, he says, I'll hand you over to it. It's the rejection of Jesus. And here we are today having to ask ourselves the same question. Are we rejecting or are we receiving Jesus? Here's how far the crowds can go. Get him out of my life. Crucify him. And yet here's how far Jesus will go in order to bring about deliverance. Trusting himself to the Father. Not my will but yours be done substituting himself in our place so that we can have salvation. He's going to the cross to die in our place. You know that middle cross was more than likely Barabbas' cross to die that day. And here's Jesus. 
now substituting himself. He's going to take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. He will offer his life as a gift of righteousness to those who will receive him. And this is all happening under the sovereign plan of God. And here we are today, 2,000 years later. We're the bent nails. We're the ones who have screwed up. We're the ones who have sinned. We are the ones who have failed God's righteousness and holiness. And yet Jesus is going to the cross for bent nails like us. Bent nails like us who receive him as Savior. Bent nails like us whom God says, okay, I've saved you. Now go out and build up my kingdom. Tell others about Jesus and let his kingdom spread across the borders and walls. God's saving bent nails like you and me this morning through Jesus in order to continue his plan to build up his kingdom, and this is all part of it. Let's pray.